Can I ask you to turn with me this evening to Acts and chapter 4, please? Acts chapter 4. The last time we were looking at this chapter, we reached verse 22. Uh, we saw how after the uh, wonderful miracle uh, by which the lame man, lame from his birth, had been made to, to walk without any restriction or pain through the name of Christ, uh, Peter and John being his instruments, that had brought them to the attention of the Jews. They'd been carried before the Sanhedrin, having been arrested, and they'd been forbidden now to preach or teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the narrative picks up in the 23rd verse, when being let go, they, Peter and John, went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's pray once again. Lord, we bring you our words now and the hearts from which they come and we pray that you would hear us and grant to us the same favour, the same freedom the same courage, the same clarity that you gave your people in these days long ago. Lord, teach us by their model, their example, what it is to pray to you in time of need. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. How might you have responded? A night in prison brought before the great authorities of the day, threatened, challenged, commanded that you will no more speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. If we're going to be brutally honest, that wouldn't be a great hardship for many of us, would it? It's all right, I never speak or teach in the name of Jesus. You wouldn't find me exposing myself to that kind of danger. Very often when we face such difficulties, our response is to retreat. It only takes one person to knock us back and we, we back away. We've had situations in the church where people have come in, heard the good news being preached and it's made them angry. Now, not that we have angered them, but our gospel has made sinners angry. What do we do when that happens? Why did you have to preach a sermon like that? Why did you speak to them like this on the door? Why did you have that conversation in the pew? You've really upset these people. And when you upset people, we do, at least some of us, the good British thing, we back off. We don't deal with this again. Perhaps we would complain. Perhaps we'd make our excuses. Perhaps we'd just try and avoid any similar situation in the future. Brothers and sisters, perhaps I can put it by way of another question. I want you to consider very carefully this evening, do you believe that God is real? It might seem like a strange question to ask in a church service. 
But do you actually believe that God is real? Not can you give me an orthodox description of the person and works of the Godhead. Not that you can distinguish between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not that you can theorize certain things, even accurately drawn from the scriptures. But do you believe in God? Do you actually believe that he is able to hear us and to help us? And I have to put that question to my own soul as much as I do to anybody else here. Is God real? Not just real to us, not just someone that we, we sort of think maybe is out there somewhere. But do we have the kind of conviction and the kind of connection that is manifested by these disciples? They pray like God is real. Do we? They pray like Hezekiah. Remember when Sennacherib came up against him? Hezekiah spread the letter before the Lord. That's the language or the, the, the actions of a man who knows that God is watching. Now he knows that God doesn't need the letter opened in order to see what's in it. But if you look either in 2 Kings 19 or Isaiah chapter 37, and we'll look at one of those shortly, there's a, there's a pattern there. There's a, 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 a sort of a, a, an image that is being taken up by these people. Again, the name of Jesus Christ runs through this whole passage. It is their great and abiding concern because the kings of the earth have taken their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Against your holy servant Jesus, they have gathered together. Verse 27, verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This is their great concern. And because the name of Jesus needs to be honoured, because the name of Christ is under threat. Therefore they turn to the God and Father of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And they deal with a real God. This sweet little episode begins with a complete report in verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own, and it's not their own companions, that's a bit tame. They went to their own. They went to their people. They went to their spiritual family. And they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They go to this spiritual family with the news. They're birds of a feather and so they flock together. Their instinct is to go back to the people of God where they give a full and frank report. They don't hide what's taken place. They don't pretend that things are worse or better or different than they are. There's no exaggeration of the problem and there's no downplaying of the reality. But Peter and John put all the facts of the matter before the brothers and the sisters who are gathered. Now, that does not mean that all of us need to tell everything about everything all the time to all the church. That is not the conclusion that we draw from these things. But I think we should ask whether or not we have anything like the instinct of Peter and John. I'm facing this particular challenge. We've got this threat to the, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the sort of threshold that we're dealing with. There is a corporate awareness of the big issues the whole body knows what is taking place and they're joining together there's a sweet familiar confidence one with another and there are times then when it is proper even necessary when we're facing some of these big challenges that we should with a sweet and familiar confidence bring the matter to the church of Jesus Christ. That's the proper sphere in which matters of this magnitude need to be known and properly addressed. The complete report brings a united response. This is beautiful language. Look at verse 24. So when they heard that, 
they raised their voice to God with one accord and spoke. They raised their voice to God with one accord and spoke. When this situation arose, a single desire was lifted up from many hearts. Now, there's a lot of hearts here. Bear in mind, we're already talking about thousands of people. And those thousands had one aim. They were united in one purpose. They raised their voice to God with one accord. There was a unity of soul here. Notice that they didn't call a planning meeting, but they called a prayer meeting. Their response is not carnal, but spiritual. They take the issue very seriously, but they're not confused about what to do next, and they're certainly not cowed by the opposition which they face. As one body, they turn straight away to the Lord God. Now, my friends, when we pray together in the services of the church, do we understand the dynamic that's taking place? I think I've mentioned once or twice to some of you, I've been asked about this and hopefully we'll dig into this a little bit more in more detail on another occasion. But here's a starter for 10, as it were. When one person leads a congregation in prayer, you are all praying, or should be. Every Christian man and woman, united like this, Raising their voice to God with one accord. That's potent. That's us throwing our weight behind the words of whoever is leading. That's why if you're leading in prayer, it's, it's serious as well as sweet business. Because we need to speak in such a way that you can, with the understanding, add your amen from a heart that is united. It takes at least as much work for you to pray as it does for me to lead in prayer. Because you're throwing your weight, you're listening, you're engaging. Yes, I'm with him or whoever it may be. It's why prayer is a necessary part of our gatherings together. We cannot leave it out because it's when we deal with heaven calling upon the name of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is why the prayer meetings of the church are amongst our highest priorities. This is why if you are a member of this congregation, the first thing in your weekly calendar Apart from the Lord's Day, sacrosanct on the first day, the day of resurrection, is the gathered prayer meeting of the church. Why? Because that's when we get to throw our hearts between one voice after another. That's when we get to express our appetites. That's when we come together to the throne of grace. No meeting outside of the Lord's days has as much weight. No other privilege is so sweet. It's a reflection not only of the communion that we enjoy with one another as it is with the access that we have to our God in heaven. Some of you have, have heard me say before that the family dynamic of a congregation really comes to the surface in a prayer meeting. That's when the news gets shared. That's when the, the engagement takes place. That's where our hearts are knit to one another as we pray together to the God of heaven. And the response then of the church is to pray. That's how important this is. That's how precious this is. That's the depth of this particular privilege. When they heard, they prayed. They prayed with unity one voice speaking on behalf of thousands of hearts. Can you imagine the amen that went up at the end of these prayers? <laughs> must have sounded like the waters breaking on the shore. Can you imagine what it must have been like to lead such a congregation in prayer? You'd have needed a fair set of lungs, wouldn't you? No standing in the corner with your face down, mumbling away like the things you want to No, you'd have to stand up and speak, and your voice would carry. And there'd be a great swelling affirmation. That man has spoken for us all. You're saying in effect, what he has said, 
we have said. We have all prayed when he has prayed. Here is a united response to this complete report. We're up against it. We've got real difficulties. But here is every heart joined together behind one voice, perhaps after another, pleading with the God of heaven. And we're not just told that they prayed. We're told how they prayed. Beautiful example here. With one accord, they said, and it seems like there's at least a summary here of perhaps the primary prayer or maybe even the only prayer on this occasion. But this is how they prayed. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, as I've already mentioned, the word of God gives both the general approach and the specific content to this particular sweeping prayer. And this is where I want you to perhaps have a look or at least listen to the prayer of Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 37 from verse 14. And it gives you, you get the same sort of tone, you get the same kind of sweep. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord with the message laid out before him. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. See the same sense of who God is? Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria had laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. There's a very similar rhythm about that, isn't there? There are echoes all the way through. These men and women know how the Old Testament saints dealt with God. And they're happy, as it were, to step into the same vehicle and to move in the same direction. But it's not just a general approach or a rhythm or a, a, a contour. It's the specific content. They quote Psalm 2. That's the truth that they grasp a hold of under these circumstances. And as they deal then with the general contours and the specific content that they draw from Scripture, there's a person that they seek, there's a purpose that they grasp, and there's a plea that they make. First of all, to whom do they turn? Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, the language that they use here may seem pretty simple, but it is very rich. It identifies God as ruler, as creator, and as revealer, because by the mouth of his servant David, he has spoken. The language of Lord here is the language of a despot. It's language that is not often used of God, although it is properly applied to him. It is a statement of God's absolute reign. Now, what comfort as well as what confidence? Where do they begin? Absolute God. Lord over all. Ruler without challenge. To you we come. That's encouraging, isn't it? To think that you're speaking to such a God. Then he's the Lord who made heaven and earth and everything that is in them. He is the rightful ruler of the entire world. Not only is he the absolute sovereign, but this is his world. 
It is answerable to him and it is under his government and he is the God who has spoken. Again, there are further echoes here of some of the Psalms, especially Psalm 146. It's the prayer of men and women who know that God is in control of everything and that they are his servants. And that's liberating. Yes, we've been threatened. Yes, we've been commanded. Yes, we've been imprisoned. Yes, we've got these uh, dangers looming over us. But we come as the servants of the Most High God who rules with absolute sovereign power by right in the heavens over everything that happens in the world that he has made and who has spoken in ways that help us to understand, interpret and respond to the situation that we're in. That's a pretty good start to a prayer, isn't it? That's where you want to begin. That's where you want to set your feet. Who is the person that we seek? It is God over all. What is the purpose then that they grasp? They, they quote these verses from Psalm 2. And the whole prayer then is framed by revolution, re- revolution, revelation, sorry, understood of Christ Jesus himself now again these men have learned well from their master remember we've mentioned it often luke chapter 24 how christ showed them from this the prophets and the histories and the law all of the things concerning himself he showed them how to interpret their old testament so that they would see christ himself at every point how do they read psalm 2 it's about jesus christ I found something online the other day. It's uh, some comments on uh, one of the Word in Season devotions that I did during the, the, the COVID lockdown period, working on them at the moment, writing them up. And, and I'd done one, I think it was one of, one of Isaiah's prophecies. And I'd not, not looked at it before, but I needed to check what I'd actually said. So I went back and listened to it. And there were some comments underneath. Someone was furious. How, how are you applying this to Jesus Christ? This has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's got everything to do with Jesus Christ. They're the same kind of reaction, though. But here's the proper interpretation. When we read the pages of our Old Testament, it should be no shock at all for us to find the Lord Christ there. When they read Psalm 2 about the Lord's anointed and the enemies that come up against him, they say, we know what this is about. This is about the Lord Jesus. And so there's a statement, and then there's an explanation or application Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. They're basically saying that Psalm 2 is a precise prophecy about their present circumstances. This is not a shock to them. So, oh, this, is, this is what God said would happen. Remember Psalm 2? Remember that, boys? Yep, this is what it's talking about. This is exactly what God had in mind. The nations and the people and the kings, the Gentiles of the earth, Israel itself and then the kings and the rulers who gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. There is rage against God. There are these vain plots and plans in order to bring down what God is seeking to accomplish. And there's a beautiful sense now because they feel their common ground with David. There's a connection here. You spoke By the mouth of your servant David. How do they refer to themselves in verse 29? Now grant to your servants here. They say, we're looking to the same God as David looked to. Now these are the inheritors of the faith of Abraham. This is the true Israel of God. And there's a a sweet continuity then. As David understood in his day something of these things. So we now see the fulfillment. And we're with him. We're inheriting what you said to him. We're stepping in to what he knew as the servant of God. When David spoke, he was talking about us. Isn't that stunning? Doesn't that help you to pray? When you look in your Old Testament... These people were talking about you, brothers and sisters. They were not perfected apart from us. Remember Hebrews 11 and 12? 
they're talking about our experience as well as their own. Here's this common ground, this sweet connection. So they say David was talking about us and they bring it right up to date. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, well, those are the kings of the earth and the rulers who are taking their stand and gathering together with the Gentiles, the nations raging, and the people of Israel, the people who plotted vain things, they were gathered together. They have no problems drawing the lines. That was this. Peter's done it again and again. Whoever's leading in prayer on this occasion is doing precisely the same thing. There's a comprehensive conspiracy against Christ Jesus. And notice again who this is about. They don't say the church is in trouble. They say Christ is being assaulted. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 when Saul of Tarsus is confronted by the risen Jesus on the Damascus road? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church, does he? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Exactly the same sense here. It is Christ who is being assaulted. It is the servant who is hated and raged against. Again, doesn't that take some of the pressure off and help us to understand? It's not the church which is hated first and foremost. If it's hated, it's hated for his sake. It is against Christ that the kings and the nations and the people take their stand and gather together. So this then is not a surprise to these men and women. This is not even an accident. Notice what they say. They gathered together, not to do whatever they wanted, but to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now that's where you plug that back into the person with whom they're dealing. Because if the person to whom they pray is the Lord, who is God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and has spoken by the mouth of his servant David, then this is his plan and purpose. The worst that happens to the people of God is part of the plan and purpose of the God whom they serve for his glory and for their good. This is what Peter had already preached on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? You go back just a, a couple of chapters. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and have put to death. Is this not staggering confidence? The things that are happening in the world around us today, who is in control? Is God riding a runaway horse, desperately trying to grab the reins and somehow pull things back into some kind of order? Or is the Lord, who is God, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, sitting serene upon the stallion of history and guiding it with the lightest of touches, Whichever way it goes. Have you been fearful because of the, 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 the latest prognostications and predictions? World War Three, before the end of our lifetime. We need to mobilize the country. Otherwise the Russians are going to sweep across the whole of Europe. I'm not saying there's no possible reality in those things. Without being vindictive, Putin could be dead before the end of this sermon. Because he's a man. What's taking place in China? Saw a news report the other day. This is the Chinese People's Republic with its armies. 
And this is what the West can muster. So, not being careless, but who's actually in control? Lord, absolute ruler. You are God. This world is yours. Everything in it is carried out in accordance with your purposes and your predispositions. That's a great comfort. That changes the way that we pray. This is where God's government is revealed. The things that are happening are a revelation of the will and purpose of God. His design is being worked out around us. All of a sudden, prayer doesn't become us desperately wrestling with this runaway horse. It becomes us standing, running alongside the Lord God, understanding that he is in control. And that's why they make the plea that they do. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Who's looking on their threats? Lord, who is God? Who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them? You, O Lord, you look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Three things, in essence, they ask this God to do in the light of the fact that Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 is being fulfilled in their midst. First of all, Lord, consider. Look on all their threats. They simply put the matter in his hands. They want him to take account of it. Here's that Hezekiah-type language again. Lord, this is what they've said. This is what they've done. This is what they've threatened. This is what they've commanded. Lord, you consider this. We'll put this in your hands. And then, not just look, but give. Grant us something. Now, what do you think, if you didn't know what was coming next, what might you have imagined that they would pray at this point? Lord, we've got this big bunch of plug uglies and they've given us all these kinds of threats and assaults. They're ready to come sweeping down against us. So Lord, take away the trouble. Just, just remove them. Lord, keep us safe. Protect us. Hedge us about Lord, crush our enemies. Destroy them. Sweep them away. Show yourself God. Nope, none of that. Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They say in effect, oh Lord, you are God and these are your creatures and we'll put them in your hands. They are not our primary concern. What is our concern is our duty that you've given to us. Christ gave us our marching orders. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what we're facing with now undermines us. Remember what we said this morning. Physical pain, personal shame, both of them right here. Lord, we feel the pressure not now to fulfill our calling to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus Christ. So our great concern at this point is not so much them. You can take care of them as you wish. You can bring down your judgments upon them. You can show your mercies to them. That, O oh sovereign God, that is your business. But for us, your people, we want boldness from heaven. We want our hearts stirred so that we can speak your word with that freedom that we've already seen again and again, that, that courageous clarity, that lack of the fear of man because we are governed by the fear of the Lord. And then stretch out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And again, I think they're reaching back to the Old Testament. And there's a, there's a little pattern here that I don't want to uh, overdevelop and I don't want to uh, overemphasize, but I think it's there. Because what we're seeing in the early chapters of Acts is, is the formation of of the new covenant Israel of God. And what is striking is that at one or two points, 
they're going through very similar experiences to Israel as they came up out of Egypt. And you'll see that perhaps particularly in an episode like Ananias and Sapphira. And so there are points here in the narrative and in the language that brings us back to the experience of Old Testament Israel and yet God is ensuring that the things where Old Testament Israel did not do well, New Covenant Israel does better because this is a better covenant. So where do you find this language of the stretching out of the hand? Exodus 13, verse 3. Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. When does God stretch forth his hand? When he's doing mighty, redemptive deeds. Or again, in verse 14 of the same chapter, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 16, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. What are they praying? Lord, as you in might redeemed your people in the past, now do the same thing again. As you worked in might and power by your servant Moses, now stretch out again your mighty hand and confirm our testimony that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You go back to verse 22. Of this man over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now you notice here that the, that the, the signs and the wonders are not the focus. The focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mighty acts of God simply confirm and underline the reality of the good news. That the name of Jesus Christ is mighty to deliver. My friends, I don't think we should have any embarrassment in asking that God, by his mighty acts, would underscore in our days the power of Jesus Christ. What will that look like for us? Salvation coming to the lost. That we should pray that God would so save sinners as to underscore without any shred of doubt that the good news of Jesus Christ remains the power of God to salvation. Oh God, stretch forth your arm, save and bless, confound the expectations of this world, confirm our witness. My friends, far from being a distraction, this season of persecution leads to a concentration of their duty. This focuses the mind, this narrows the attention. The people of God, rather than wondering, now what do we do? Now where do we go? Now how do we... They know the answers. God's already told them who they are. God has already commanded them what they are to do. The Lord Christ has spoken to them. Go and tell the good news to the world that needs it. And when the pressure comes at that precise point, they do not query whether or not those are the right commands. They go to the God who gave those commands and say, Lord, you help us. Help us to speak with boldness. Keep us true to our task. Keep us fixed on our course. And give to us all that is needful that we may carry out your commands. And there is then, lastly this evening, this heavenly response. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. My friends, I come back to that question with which we began. Is God real? That's proved in the way that we pray. Can he hear us and will he help us? 
Are our prayers simply rehearsals of words that we give because somehow it's a sort of a psychological discharge? It makes us feel a little bit better. Or brothers and sisters, when we gather as a church and call upon the name of the Lord who is God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and has spoken to us in this book, we actually believe that God is hearing us and is well able to help us. That when we go and speak on the streets and knock on the doors, that it is this God to whom we have prayed. That when we gather as a church, when we deal with our own souls and with the souls of others, that this is the God with whom we have to deal. That when we're looking at our unconverted friends or family members and we've pleaded that we are asking God to work in power, that it is not simply a form of words that takes the edge off our pains. We are praying to the God of heaven. and He is well able to bless. And our first concern. Perhaps this again needs to transform the way that we pray. It's not so much Lord save them. It's Lord help us. Lord give us boldness of speech. Help us to believe that you are. And that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And help us without fearing the faces of men to go and tell them the truth about our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Is God able to hear? Can God help? There are three elements to the divine response. First of all, there's a shaking. The place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now, there are reports in certain times of revival of similar physical manifestations. I'm not going to speak to those. I don't think we should be praying that places would shake. But when places shake like this, it's an indication of the presence of God. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai shook because God came down. You go back to Isaiah Chapter 6, when the temple was filled with smoke and Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and everything shook. Places shake like this because God has come near. What's wonderful here is that with this token of God's presence, the place may be shaking, but the people are being strengthened. They're not shaking. Their hearts are being made strong. And then there's a filling. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is the point at which you might say, okay, I'm a little bit confused now, because I thought, if I remember correctly, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, I thought they had been filled with the Spirit. Are these the people who haven't yet been filled with the Spirit, who are being filled with the Spirit? Were there other people who'd been filled with the Spirit, but then got emptied of the Spirit and need to be filled? What is going on here? My friends, the wonder of God's grace is that you can be filled over and over and over again. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and you want the Holy Spirit and you may have more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. God is ready to bless in answer to our prayers. Who do we need? We need God with us. These people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They faced a new challenge and they had fresh resources. They were stirred once again. They were filled once again. There was a repeated filling. There's a refreshing enabling. Not because they'd been emptied. Not because some are full and some are empty. And they're trying to work out how to get enough into everybody. There's a new need and there's new grace for that need. My friends, that's sweet for us. I need to be filled with the Spirit for every sermon that I preach. I want to be filled with the Spirit for every conversation that I have. Don't you want to be filled with the Holy Ghost again and again and again? Don't you want to know as you tell people about Jesus Christ something of that enabling? Your mouth being opened and you speaking with a kind of a freedom and a distinctness and a warmth and an affection that you might say, I barely know where this is coming from. Times you always think, how is this coming out of my mouth? My friends, God was at work. 
he drew near and he filled all his people. Again, notice, not just the apostles, not just the preachers, they all knew the blessing of God's presence and God's spirit in their hearts. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Some here, you, you know the almost obsession in some circles with speaking in tongues. If there was any occasion when you might have thought you would read and they all broke out and spoke in tongues again, it would be this. What did they do? They spoke the truth. They spoke the word of God. The powerful operations of the Holy Spirit don't produce some kind of ecstatic jibber-jabber. They produce plain speaking of the word of God in Jesus Christ. These men and women, they went out and they talked to their friends and their neighbours and they did so with unrestricted courage and straightforwardness. And the preachers stood up, as we'll see in the next few chapters, and they preached with boldness. Did you notice Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2 that we looked at this morning? Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God. That's the language of a man who's knowing the present power and the sweet operations of the Holy Spirit in his labours. My friends, this isn't something that we pray for the preacher alone. I could say this evening like Moses when Joshua came and said, Oh, Dad and me, Dad, are chatting outside the keo. What's wrong with them? They didn't bother. No, would that all God's people were prophets. My friends, I long for the day when every member of this congregation has something of this kind of freedom of speech to make Jesus known to our friends and neighbours. I want it for myself. I want it for you. I believe that God, by his power, can shake off the shackles of our timidity, let's say perhaps at times my cowardice, and enable me to speak with boldness, to look into the faces of men and women. You know what it's like. If you were out on the doors yesterday... You ever had a slight sense of relief that no one comes to that door? And then finally someone opens it. And you think, okay, where do I go? Where do I go? How do, how do I start? And, and, and perhaps someone gets angry with you. Perhaps you see someone who starts getting a little bit tetchy. Someone begins to push back. How do we want to respond? My friends, this isn't brashness. This isn't bolshiness. This isn't just a flood of overwhelming words. This is confident and courageous clarity concerning the Christ of the Scriptures. To be able, with conviction, to speak of him in whom we trust and who brings salvation to sinners. We've had it already in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Let me speak freely to you. Isn't that, you might not use that language. Isn't that what you want to be able to say in your family perhaps? On the doors to your neighbours, I'm going to speak freely to you. You can't scare me. I'm the servant of the Lord who is God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's in control. He's taken away my fear of men. It's there in chapter 4 and verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and they were astounded because they were uneducated and untrained. Where do these men get these things? How is it that they look us in the eye? That there's a clarity, that there's a courage, that there's a conviction, that there's a, a comprehensiveness, that there's a coherence to what they have to say. My friends, I can't promise you, and I don't think I ever should, that we should come together and pray for a shaking of the place. That was not what these men and women had asked for. We shouldn't Pray first and foremost that, that, that our enemies would be taken away, that our troubles would be removed, that our sorrows would be lifted, that God would deal with people out there and make this a more congenial atmosphere, make this an easier ride for us. 
we should be praying, Lord God, give to each one of us in our proper place and sphere the kind of freedom from the fear of man that enables us to live and to speak with the boldness that the Holy Spirit can provide. Will you come to the prayer meetings? Not because it's on the calendar. Not because you have to. Not because we're going to take a register and not because we're going to chase you up. Will you come to the meetings for prayer? Will you engage in prayer in our meetings on the Lord's days and on other occasions, whether it's the gathered church or smaller groups, friends together, the ladies gathering together, men gathering to pray, friends who come together for the purpose of intercession? Will you come on these particular occasions speaks for us? And we will throw the weight of our souls before whoever it is calls upon the name of the Lord. That we will learn then to pray the general contours and the specific content of the word of God. That we will tune our hearts. That we will raise our voices. That we will combine our desires. And that we will seek the blessing that the church of Jesus Christ needs in this day from he who is its head and his father who reigns on high. Brothers and sisters, what other strategy would you have us pursue? How are things going in this world? What's the spirit of the age? What's the current in our culture? What are the challenges that we face? What are the needs that we have? We could have a thousand, thousand planning meetings. We could raise up 400 new committees. We could start a whole bunch of conferences. We could introduce all kinds of schemes. We could work out many new programs. Or we could do what Christ's church did when they came up against it in the first days of their life together. They went to their own. They reported everything that was going on and they raised their voice to the God of heaven with one accord and they said, Lord, help us to be faithful to our charge. And the God who is there heard them and answered them. And they spoke with boldness. The persecution intensified. The opposition got worse. Their faithfulness increased. And their fruitfulness was manifest. My friends, we don't wish for persecution and opposition. It's there and it's rising. What we seek is the blessing of God upon faithful labour. For the name of our Lord.